Let us pray. Gracious Father, we thank you for the gift of your word. We ask, Father, that as the word uh, is read to us, as it is preached, that you would indeed open up our hearts. Father, we know that it is only by your initiative that we know anything about you. Father, I pray that as we look at the text uh, for this morning, you would remind us that it was given to us um, at a time and a place in history where Paul wrote it, uh, but that it transcends uh, all of history, that it is just as true today as it was back then because you are eternal and infinite and wise. Father, I pray that you would help use uh, our time together to glorify your son, Jesus Christ, that we would see him more for who he is. Father, our lives are always filled with uh, many things that will distract us. Some things good, some things bad, uh, but Father, we we come to you even today as people who uh, have minds that wander. So we ask, Father, that you would quiet our hearts, that by your spirit you would help us to be still, so that we might know you better. Give us ears to hear, give us eyes to see, give us hearts that would believe all that you have for us this morning. I pray that the words uh, that are preached, that I speak, uh, would be your words for the glory of your Son. So we ask this in your Son, Jesus' precious name. Amen. Well, I want to begin with a question uh, for us today, and that is, uh, what If you were to think about it, what is it that shapes and colors how you see the world around you? When you think about the world and and, uh, how things are today, whether personally or uh, really globally or in our country, what is it that that colors how you see the world today? There's a lot of factors that will influence how we'll view the things around us. How will we see our relationships, uh, our circumstances, our jobs, or even our politics. Some of those influences are good and helpful, and some of them are not. For instance, like a a loving and faithful friend, a caring about us, uh, they might help us to care about others better, uh, to see and trust and be able to, uh, to trust others because of our trust that we have in them. It might help us to feel better about other people. But a harsh or abusing parent Uh, maybe you grew up with one, uh, might make it difficult for you to to trust and get close to other people. There's a lot of things that shape how we view the world around us. Those two people, right, in those examples, they, they might attend the same church and they might profess the same beliefs, but quite possibly they might respond to things like new neighbors, moving into their neighborhood or maybe a conflict at school or at work or even an unanswered email from a friend in very different ways. Because there's a lot that influences us. And so that's what I want to ask you is what is it that shapes how you see your world? What is it that influences how you take in and understand your relationships, your circumstances, your job, your role and responsibility as as a student As a child, as a parent, as a spouse, even as a member of a growth group. Well, there are hundreds and thousands of influences represented, I think, just even in this room. We're not aware of all of them, but whether or not we are, 
Every single one of us probably has a myriad of influencing our lives. But this morning, from our text, I want to contend that if you are a Christian, then there's one factor, there's one reality that ought to outweigh all the others. And that is the supremacy of Jesus Christ over all things. I'm not saying that it does. And often, in fact, it doesn't outweigh all the others, but it should. I want to make a case from our text of why it should. The reason is because there is nothing else in your life or influencing your life that has greater impact than Jesus Christ. In fact, there's, there's nothing and no one that's greater in all of the universe than Jesus Christ. And this is the, the knowledge, I think, that Paul was praying for as he prayed for the Colossian believers that they would grow in knowledge. If you look briefly back, if you have your text open uh, to Colossians chapter 1 and you look at Colossians 1.9, you'll see Paul says, And so, from the day we heard, we've not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding. And then he goes on. And what is not necessarily evident in the English translation, but is true in the Greek, is that that sentence that Paul begins in verse 9 is continued. It's one long sentence, one long thought that goes all the way through the end of verse 20. So this is related. Uh, That which Paul wants the Colossians to know is going to culminate in what we're talking about this morning. The passage that we're looking at in many ways is the climax of Paul's prayer. And it's an area that we as Christians, we need to be reminded of as well. It's, It's one that we need to be growing in That is the glory and majesty of Christ and his supremacy over all things. And so in our text this morning, I want to highlight three aspects that display that Jesus holds supremacy over all things. So three different things that I want to hold up. And the first is that Jesus Christ holds supremacy over all things as Lord of creation. Lord of creation. So when Paul wrote the letter to the Colossians, it was about 30 years after the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. So Christianity was still relatively obscure. The message of the gospel was indeed making an impact, uh, and it was certainly impacting the lives of the Colossian believers. But it was still really mostly understood as an offshoot of Judaism. And the world of the Colossians was mostly a world of paganism and pagan beliefs. So pagan worship was very much tied up into the uh, worship of idols and idol images. But Paul contends that Jesus Christ is different. And so look at our text this morning, and I want you to, to look at verse 15. In the beginning of 15, Paul describes Jesus as the image of the invisible God. And we're, we're going to really move slowly through what Paul is saying, and, and we see that he is the image of the invisible God. He's not simply an image, but he is the image. He's the image of the invisible God. And as Les read for us in the creation account, uh, we read that the, the first man and the first woman were created in God's image. Right? And so God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him, male and female, he created them. 
And so in God's image, right, we then even today, we, we are people that reflect God, right? Not physically, but in character and, and all that God has imbued of, of himself on us. And so even actually after uh, sin entered the world, the scriptures continue to tell us that we bear the image of God. It's marred. It's not the same as it was, but we are image bearers. But here Paul says that, that Jesus is not just an image, but he's the image. Right? It's not as if we can say that, that he's, well, he's really the best image of God that we have right now. I think about uh, the fact uh, that I was really impressed as a, a young person growing up in the 1970s of the clarity of the new TVs that were out. Like you, like people were, like were right there. And if you have ever seen a 1970s TV compared to today's TVs, it's not the same. Well, we move forward, right? We, we got DVDs, right? And man, DVDs, it was, it was so sharp. Well, now that we've got Blu-ray and 4K and blah, 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 we look back and the DVDs are all, boy, they're not very clear. But see, Jesus is not simply the most advanced image that they had at that time. He's the image of God. And so even today, right, Jesus is more than just a copy, more than just a, a replication. He is the image of the invisible God because he is God. He's the invisible God made visible. Paul says that he is the, the firstborn of all creation. That idea of firstborn goes back to Old Testament. And uh, it's really the, the firstborn was the individual, usually the son, almost always the son, uh, who had the right of inheritance. And so we think, well, Jesus was the first, right? He was, that's what Paul is saying. Well, not exactly. Right? Because it, uh, firstborn in the inheritance didn't always go uh, according to chronology. It wasn't always the one that was born first was considered the firstborn. Because often it signifies priority, the most important, uh, and, uh, preeminent in rank. One example uh, that we have uh, that links back to uh, King David as we've been going through 1 Samuel. Uh, in Psalm 89, God speaks these words of promise to King David. In Psalm 89, 27, he says, I will make him the firstborn. Okay, David, the firstborn. Well, he certainly wasn't the first king of Israel, right? He was the second king. Saul was the first king. And he wasn't even the oldest in his family. In fact, he was the youngest son. But we know that in that psalm, he was talking about preeminence. He's talking about importance. And we know that because the second half of verse 27, he says that, I will make him uh, the firstborn, the highest of the kings of the earth. And so in that sense that, that David is the firstborn, he's the most important. And regarding Jesus as firstborn of all creation, there's no one that has higher status. Now, one of the objections uh, that, that you might think, or you might actually even hear, or might come literally knocking to your door, is that, um, well, that this text means that Jesus was created, right? He's a firstborn of creation. He was God's first created being. And that's what the Jehovah's Witnesses will teach, right? And so if they come to your door, um, they're going to argue from verse 15 uh, that Jesus was simply God's very first created being. 
And they would say that Jesus was God's perfect creation, right? His, his perfect image, his firstborn. But I think the problem, well, not think, I will tell you, the problem with that position, that, that understanding, is that it denies the deity of Christ. It denies that he is part of the eternal member of the Godhead. And certainly it misses, I think, the point of these verses. Paul says that Jesus is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, for by him, by Jesus, he says all things were created. And you think, okay, well, right there, if Jesus created all things, we know that he can't be one of God's creation. Except, make sure you use your version of the Bible if you're talking to a Jehovah's Witness. Because in the New World Translation, by the way, if you're using an online Bible, don't use the New World Translation, right? It's not a good translation. Uh, the New World Translation, which is their translation, they've changed some words. And in their version, uh, they add the word other to verse 16, right? So it says, for by him, by Jesus, all things were created. By him, all other things were created. And they'll tell you, well, there's a problem with your Bible. That, that's what they'll tell you. But what I'm going to tell you is that there's a problem with their Greek. There is no, as absolutely, there's no textual warrant for adding the word other. What they're doing is they're, they're denying the deity of Christ and, and they're changing the words of Scripture. Just like the Colossian church needed to be aware of false teaching, we do too. Right? Their teaching seeks to make, less, uh, make Jesus less than God. And what Paul wants in this text is to reveal the glorious truth of who Jesus truly is. So for, uh, for by him, Jesus, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or, or authorities. In other words, everything. He's over everything. All things were created through him and for him. As part of the, the triune God, Jesus was the agent of creation. Think about that conversation. They said, let us make man in our own image. Right? There's a sense in which it was the Godhead speaking together, talking about making uh, human beings, making uh, Adam and Eve. Jesus was there. Jesus is the agent of God's creation. Jesus is a glorious and powerful creator. And not only uh, was he there at creation, but it also tells us that he is the goal or the purpose of creation. All things were created for him, meaning for his purposes. So it's not like he, he is not like someone who just spins a top and uh, then walks away either. Right? So as the creator, he is over all things. He creates purpose for all things and verse 17 tells us that he sustains all things. So uh, it says in verse 17 that he is before all things. And that's both chronologically and in rank, and in him all things hold together. Jesus is Lord of creation because nothing exists that he didn't make. He's no rivals for power or authority. There are no physical laws uh, that he did not create. The sun rises predictably in the morning uh, because he wills it to. He's not bound by the laws of physics. As one of my seminary professors said, 
There are no laws of nature, only the habits of God. Think about that for a moment. It's not like God created the universe and was limited in how he did it. He created the universe and everything in it. He is the Lord of all. All things were created for his purpose and for, for him. He, he's, he holds all things together. So the question is, how should that shape our view of the world around us? Well, we could uh, certainly point to uh, creation uh, as opposed to evolution. I, that, that's certainly one point that uh, is important for us to consider. But I don't think that's really where Paul was aiming at in this text. Our lives and the world around us has purpose because Jesus has determined that it has purpose. The people around us that we come into contact with, whether we like them or not, have dignity because they are created in God's image. When we look at the glories of the world all around us, of his creation and, and everything that we see that's amazing, we should admire them, but more so, we should admire the artist who created them. Also, nothing that you or I will ever encounter, no difficulty, no opposition, will ever be greater than Jesus Christ. He is above all. So we shouldn't be intimidated by the things of this world that oppose Jesus. We should never be afraid that anything could ever dethrone Jesus. He's truly worthy of all our praise and adoration. The reality is, is that the world that we live in is much different than the world that God declared at the very end of a six-day creation, but it's still his world. At the end of the six-day creation, what did God say? God said that it was very good. Right? And, and that is really what he's describing as this good creation in these verses. But as we move on to the text, we realize that he's not only Lord over creation, but he's Lord over creation even today, even after sin has entered the world. Sin entered the world through the first act of, of disobedience. God's very good creation was marred. And we feel its effects everywhere we go, every day. Disobedience and rebellion against God's good rule brought death into the world. But praise be to God that Jesus Christ holds supremacy over all things. And he's done something about it. That's, the first, that's our second point, is that, that Jesus Christ holds supremacy over all things as first Lord of creation, but then secondary, as Lord of the church. We know that sin did not take God by surprise. Didn't take God by surprise in the garden. He knew it was coming and he made a way. He knew it would happen. It didn't dethrone Jesus Christ as being Lord over all. The fall didn't hurt or lessen his rule or his power. It's true that creation was marred by the fall, but through Christ we see that God now is making a new people, a people from every tribe, every nation, every language. Jesus is head of the church. He's uh, the sovereign Lord of the church. He's the one who gives the church its life, its purpose, its direction, its very beginning. So as we look at the text, verse 18 says that, that he is 
the head of the body. Now, if, if you've been paying attention, there's a number of he is statements throughout this passage. And so now we get to he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn of the dead. So we have he is and we have firstborn again. So this multi-ethnic body was created by Jesus Christ by the power of his resurrection. And so we have, we have the world, uh, we have the word firstborn again, as I said. And so first he was uh, firstborn, over creation, firstborn of creation and now he's firstborn of the dead. Jesus is not the first person to be raised from the dead. Right? You think about it, it's not like firstborn, he's the first guy who it happened to. No, even Lazarus himself, Jesus had raised from the dead before his own death. But Jesus' resurrection was unlike any other because Jesus was the one to destroy the power of death, that in everything he might be preeminent. Jesus is preeminent in all things, in creation and in salvation. Think about it for a moment, right? Uh, once the fall happened, we would think that creation should be condemned. But God made a way. And throughout the Old Testament, it was all pointing to Christ. But then in the resurrection, Christ made that way. That those in the Old Testament by faith believed would come. And now us, we look back, we know did come. Jesus is Lord over the church. Verse 19, he says, For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of the cross. When we think about, once again, that it had only been a number of years, about 30 years, after the death of and resurrection of Jesus Christ, that the Colossians received this letter and these words. We might, some of you might think 30 years is a really long time. But at some point, like you'll realize 30 years is not that long of a time. News of, of Christ's bloody crucifixion was still able to be passed on by those who had witnessed it. And it was probably still hard for some to believe that a condemned and executed man was anything more than a criminal. But the reality is that Jesus is fully divine, fully God. And the incarnation, the, the earthly life from the birth all the way to uh, the death and beyond, right? That the earthly life of Jesus was fully pleasing to God. He was fully pleasing to God. Jesus, the invisible, the vis I'm sorry, Jesus is the, the visible image of the invisible God because he is God and everything that Jesus Christ said, everything that he did and everything done to him, including the crucifixion, was God's plan. God was pleased to dwell in Jesus. Nothing that Jesus did ever brought God shame and so we should never be ashamed of Jesus or the gospel even today. We shouldn't be ashamed of how God brought salvation into the world or how God brings reconciliation and peace with God to us. I think it's really important that we have a right view of who Jesus is so that we might have a right view of our own salvation. And that leads us to the, our third point. 
So Jesus Christ holds supremacy over all things as the Lord of creation, as the Lord of the church, and Jesus Christ is sufficient in salvation. Sufficient in salvation. What do I mean sufficient in salvation? That seems like like a Lord of all, Lord of creation, Lord, 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 and he's sufficient in salvation. I I hear that word and I think, sufficient, doesn't that just mean like just enough, right? Like, I mean, Jesus is amazing. He's above everything and now you're saying he's just sufficient. Like, you know, you get a huge Christmas dinner and your your mom asks you, do you want more? And you said, no, thank you. I've had sufficient. Maybe that doesn't happen. I don't know. Okay. (laughs) Allow me to explain. So I think Paul is laying out the implications of Christ's supremacy in their own lives. And he does so by, he points to who Jesus is and then he points to them and he, he points to their past, their present, and their future. So in light of who Christ is, now think about your own lives, Colossians, and, and so we think about our, our own lives Verse 21, Paul reminds them of who they were. He said, And you who were once alienated and hostile, hostile in mind, doing evil deeds. Right? So that, that's who they were. And really, before Christ, that's who any of us were. Before Christ, they were, they were alienated. That means estranged from God. They were far from him, unable to be uh, close to him in any way. And what does he say? Uh, he says that they were active in their hostility. So both their minds, their thoughts, as well as their actions. And if Christ is the Lord of creation, it's not difficult to understand what that hostility looks like. It's not difficult for us to understand what it looks like in our own lives. It's rebellion against God and his authority, his rulership, his right. It's not submitting to his ways or his will, It's wanting to live our lives our own way, not submitting to anybody else, especially not to God. I mean, he's invisible. Like, I think he's made up. And that's what a rebellious mind would think. I'm not saying that. That's true, right? That's just what a rebellious mind would think, that God doesn't exist. But just as they were active in their rebellion against God, he says that they were passive in their reconciliation with God. Verse 22, he says, He has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death. So what has he done, right? You were active in your rebellion, but now he has has now reconciled you in his body of flesh by his death. He doesn't say you reconciled. You were the recipient of reconciliation. Christ and his works bring reconciliation to a rebellious and actively hostile sinner. That's what God does, right? That is what grace looks like. Not people who really want it, not people who go on a long journey to find it, but to rebels. And I think, in addition, what is so remarkable about the word reconcile that he uses is that it doesn't just simply mean he tolerates them. I'll let you in, okay? But just go sit in that corner. Don't say anything. Reconcile means friendship. Friendship with God, right? Active rebellion to friendship and intimacy. 
he, he described it in verses 13 and 14, which was just before our text. He says, he's delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Wow. Jesus is a mighty savior to undeserving people. And his grace is glorious. That's who they were. That's who they are. And now he points to who, uh, what is to come, their future. He says that Jesus has done this in order, and this is the, the next part of verse 22, in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. One author pointed out, he said that, that everything that Jesus did at Easter was with a view to judgment day. Right? Everything he did on Easter was to get us to that point. Because that's what he's pointing to. That was the purpose. Right? He's the one who determines the purpose. And so we who were once alienated from God, one day presented as holy and set apart, where we were once hostile in mind, then we become blameless before him. Right? Hostile in mind, my thoughts, but now I'm blameless before a God who can see me for who I am. He knows every thought, every intention. Well, once doing evil deeds with my hands and my life, one day presented as above reproach, beyond accusation. Think of the transformation. Like the implication is that Jesus Christ will present every believer from all time before himself at judgment day as perfect. Verse 23, he says, if indeed, what? He says, if indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven and on which I, Paul, became a minister. Oh, okay. So this, I think, is where we get shaky. I, I was doing good. Like, maybe we should have just ended the sermon right there before you added this if statement. If indeed? Ah. Oh. The question becomes, at this point, is Jesus truly sufficient in salvation? I think one of the things that the Colossians were fighting against is the teaching that, well, he is, but you also need to do more things. If you want to stay in the faith, there's a lot you need to do. So we have to ask, right, is Paul saying, right, that, that, that I've got to be faithful in a way as I never stumble? Uh, do I need to be faithful in, in, in so that I never sin? Can I never doubt? Steadfast to the end, I'm not sure I can do that. And so in a moment of panic, right, what do we do? We, we, we reach out, we grasp for different things that we can hold on to that maybe will help us in the midst of our salvation. We add to the work that Christ has done. What do I need to do? What do I need to, uh, to uh, guard against? Uh, what do I need to add to my life to make sure that, that this doesn't happen to me? And if we're not careful, what do we do? We begin to look for our security in other things, other things than Christ. I think about my Bible reading. Am I reading the scriptures enough that God will be happy with me? 
Right? Am I going to enough church events? Right? Am, I, uh, am I faithful enough? Am I keeping up on the latest blogs and podcasts? Uh, am, am I guarding against the latest threats to the church? Uh, am I holding the correct political views? Am I, am I, am I, am I? Well, all of a sudden we realize that our, our focus is on ourselves. And it's overwhelming. It's more than we can handle. As a believer, Jesus Christ has promised to make you perfect. Jesus Christ has promised to make you perfect. It's not as if Jesus said, I'll give you the tools and then you see if you can become perfect. The point is that Jesus is sufficient in salvation. He is enough. We don't need anything else. His sacrifice is sufficient to cover all of your sins. His power is sufficient to hold us steadfast to the end. You see, the future is certain for the believer as long as we continue. Oh, no, wait. You got this if statement again. No, it's certain as long as we continue in the faith. In the faith. Right? It's that we hold that, that our foundation is in Christ not on ourselves and our own works. He's the one that we need to build our lives on. That he is the one who's steadfast and has promised that he'll never let us go. That our focus is, the focus of our hope is, is not on what we do, but in looking to Christ and what he has done, what he is doing, and what he has promised he will accomplish. And as Paul points to the gospel going out, which he became a minister, I think what Paul is saying is that it's the same gospel. It's the same gospel that saved you. It's the same gospel that sustains you. It's the same gospel that went out from among you and bore fruit, both in your community and in the world. It's the same gospel at work in us here today, both in, in us individually, that saves us, that transforms us, that goes out from us to the very ends of the world. So what do we do? I think, I think what we do is we keep our eyes on Christ. We remember that he is indeed supreme over all things. As Lord of creation, there is nothing that can come against him. As Lord of the church, he has said that the gates of hell will not prevail against us. Well, really against him and his church. But when we lose sight of Christ as being supreme over all things, we not only struggle to see Christ rightly, we struggle to see the world around us rightly. So if I don't see Christ rightly, I won't see the world around me rightly either. Ed Welch wrote a book called When People Are Big and God Is Small. And in that book, he talks about what happens when the people in our lives become a greater focus uh, to us than, than God is. And I think that it can happen not just with people, but I think it can also happen about thinking about circumstances. If we pursue pleasing people, or if we fear the opinions of others, or we become afraid that somehow the things in our world around us are going to become greater than God, well, people become bigger to us, and God becomes less of a big deal to us. 
Pretty soon, those people begin to cover up our vision of who Christ is, and we forget that he's sovereign, and we begin to think that they are sovereign. So we have to guard our hearts against that. Because the struggles that we face in our lives, the, the difficulties, right, the fears, the headlines, who's in political power, like all of those things are much less than who Jesus is. I'm not saying that, that those things in the headlines are not important. Those things in the podcast are not important. I'm not saying that those are not important, but they're definitely not more important than who Jesus Christ is. He is far greater far more glorious and far more victorious than anything else that we face in our world today. And so we should strive to see the world around us in light of our sovereign Savior. Our hope in this life and in the next is that Jesus Christ is on the throne, that he is the Lord of creation, he's the Lord of the church, and he is sufficient in salvation. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the gift of your Son, Jesus Christ, without whom we would not have life, we would not have breath. Father, we thank you, too, that uh, you have revealed yourself to us through Jesus Christ, that we might know you better. And not only that, might have reconciliation with you. And so, Father, I pray that as a community of believers, that you would help fix our eyes upon Jesus and that you would help us to help each other to fix our eyes upon Jesus. Father, in the midst of difficulty in our lives, in the midst of pain, in the midst of sorrow, in the midst of anxiety and frustrations, I pray that you would help us to help each other to remember that you are on the throne, that you are victorious. And so, Father, I ask that, that you would be at work in our church community to make Christ known, to remind us of who you are and to tell others of who you are. May he be the Lord of our lives, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.